All right, folks, if you can find a seat. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Welcome to the Do Politics Better podcast, Asheville. Thank you. We have a guest this week. We do, and I just learned that he was a distinguished professor. (laughs) Don't throw these things around like candy. (laughs) We're honored to be in your presence. Glad to be here. This will be fun. We've been talking to you about being our guest for some time. Of course, you've done multiple podcasts. This is one of many, right? This is my favorite. It's the one I've been looking forward to the most. So it's, uh, yeah. It's like a person who says that, they don't have a favorite child, but favors one child. We're the last of his podcast stops. Yeah. Well, th- so. My favorite child's my second child. So this is, my, <laughs> and I have two. So the most recent one, same thing with the podcast. Right. Well, we welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Cooper, and we're excited to just jump right into some news. If you have not ever listened to our podcast, we generally start with the news of the week. So Dr. Cooper, this week, the caucuses on the Senate side met and elected their leaders. Senator Phil Berger was elected, I believe this will be his seventh biennium, where he is arguably the most powerful politician right now in North Carolina politics. Mm -hmm. He has yet to achieve the longevity of Senator Mark Basnight. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you this question. Senator Berger, would you say that he has made an imprint that has surpassed Senator Baznight's legacy, which is substantial here yeah. in North Carolina. I'm just going to start with the really easy stuff, yeah, the, like, the know, ones that won't take right anybody in. off. Yeah, we're, we're just going right to, no. Um, I certainly wouldn't say surpass, but I mean, it's a pretty incredible legacy, right? I mean, if what legislators are supposed to do, especially leaders, is to whip their party, is to pass legislation when they can, and to remake the shape, uh, remake the state and the vision that they see. I think pretty clearly he's going to be on the Mount Rushmore of sort of North Carolina legislative leaders. I mean, I think when we think about people like Baz Knight, think in the West, people like Liston Ramsey, I think these are going to be the kind, he will certainly be mentioned in that sort of short list of names that change the state. Whether you love that change or don't like that change, it's up to you. But clearly he has exerted power and changed the state in ways. Can you kind of talk about what those changes have been since Senator Berger has come into power? 2010, the Republicans took over across the country, right? This is the Project Red Map. It was very successful in North Carolina. It was successful everywhere else. North Carolina switched from, uh, well, it's the first time we've had unified Republican controls in over 100 years, Mm -hmm. which was right when you started in the General Assembly. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it's about about 100 years. I mean, look, the state has changed in every way. And I think right, you know, beginning in 2011, the first round of redistricting clearly set the stage to change our state in a number of ways. I think elections are run differently in the state. I think the um, variety of policies around business that folks in this room are certainly better versed in probably than I am. Um, You know, it has turned from a, a state that was dominated by Democrats to one that is you know, at least at the legislative level, dominated by Republicans. That's a very, very different environment, I think. It feels to me like Roy Cooper, our governor, mm-hmm. is probably the last of that regime that came out of Mark Baznight. He was in a mm-hmm. appropriations chair under Senator Baznight. Where 
I think the shift will be complete after Governor Cooper yeah. ends his term as governor. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that we think about generations in North Carolina politics and kind of when people came in, we're used to talking about this a lot in Congress, right? We talk about the, the senators that came in to the House initially with Newt Gingrich in 94, and I think you can think of people that sort of came of age in the same legislative time. I mean, all the, the mores and the, the uh, kind of folkways and the ways we operate, just like in a family where you try to, you know, I try to teach my kids, act a certain way, don't act a certain way, I think legislators do much of the same thing. And so, yeah, Cooper, I think, is going to be sort of the last of that generation, really the last of that generation of real democratic dominance right. um, in North Carolina. Is it the end of the conservative Democrat in North Carolina? Because Senator yeah. Basnight was a conservative Democrat. Yeah, describe yeah. for people who maybe aren't sure. aware or are new to North Carolina or are younger than Brian, what the <laughs> Baznight regime even means. Yeah, I mean, I think it means capital D Democratic politics, um, but that doesn't mean AOC politics, right? That doesn't mean, um, you know, sort of woke politics in today's terminology at all. I mean, much closer, since we're in a Western North Carolina room, I can drop some Western North Carolina examples, much closer to kind of a Heath Shuler uh, vision of the Democratic Party. And you kind of let in and you said, is this the end of it? And I think Heath Shuler just moved to Tennessee, what, last month? So maybe that's a sign that this is in some ways um, kind of the end of, of the old kind of blue dog Democrats that we see in the state of North Carolina. So Senator Ralph Heiss was mm -hmm. also elected, re-elected, I should point out, as Deputy mm -hmm. Senate Pro Tem. Mm -hmm. Certainly not the power position of Phil Berger, right. but it's a, it's a flag you plant, right? It, absolutely, one that's planted firmly in the West, and of course that was one of the I don't want to say one of. That was the most interesting primary, at least in my mind, that happened in the state of North Carolina in 2022, right? This was, you know, Ralph Heiss was not guaranteed re-election given the sort of vagaries of the way the county clustering, which is the way we do redistricting in the General Assembly happened. So you had a really competitive race. People weren't quite sure what was going to happen. Between whom? Between Deanna Ballard and Ralph Heiss. Um, and so Bruiser race, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was the one... You know, rarely do we say the race to watch in the state is in Western North Carolina, but the race to watch in the state was in Western North Carolina, at least in that primary, at least in my mind. Um, and so Heist did win that by a pretty small margin. Um, and yeah, the double bunking that happened there was just kind of an outcome of this county clustering and the kind of unusual way we do redistricting in North Carolina. So over in the House, the speaker that has been the speaker is going to remain the speaker, and that is Speaker Tim Moore, who also has held that position for a while. The House side looks more like they have. On the Senate side, just to jump back over there, there is a new majority leader, and that is Senator Paul Newton. And I think that's really interesting because previously on the Senate side, the majority leader was Kathy Harrington, and she, she is no longer running. And Paul Newton is in Cabarrus County, which is a county that is trending more Democratic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if, if we're looking at kind of this, generally speaking, we're used to seeing 
kind of power reside in a place that, that fits it, right? So you tend to see Democratic power in churning Democratic areas, Republican power in churning Republican areas. I think this is a bit of an exception to that rule. So if you're looking at somebody who can maybe stay on and kind of fight against that tide a little bit in the future, I think this is exactly the kind of power position that can enable, again, to pull it back to the 11th and Schuler for a second, much like I think Schuler held on in the 11th, maybe a, a hair longer than you might have expected from the way the district was drawn. Now, the Democrats also had an election on the Senate side. They re-elected Senator Dan Blue as minority leader, Jay Choudhury as whip. We also have Senator Julie Mayfield, who is here. She was elected as secretary for the Democratic caucus. And she's taking notes on this, actually, too. <laughs> <laughs> Were you surprised after the tough election that Democrats had on November 8th here, especially in the Senate. Were you surprised that the leadership was reelected? Not really. I mean, it's okay. difficult for me to imagine who else would have taken over there. I mean, look, the Democratic Party, again, we got people who are living it every day that know better than me. My sense is it's still a fairly united caucus. We can talk more about how united it is. Maybe somebody will peel off or won't. But uh, no, I was not surprised to see it hold. I don't think this was a the kind of election that should send all Democrats back to reassess who they are, where they came from, and why they do what they do. I think this was an election that fell much with the tides that we would have expected, right? Mm -hmm. So the Democrats did worse than the Republicans, but they didn't do quite as badly as they could have done. And in a friendly Republican year, I think that is probably about you know the best they could expect. If they had over, if they had made changes at this point, I think it would have been an overcorrection. Zach mentioned in the intro that we have orientation this week. Mm -hmm. Many of your delegation is not here because they're in Raleigh. Right. They're there to learn how to press green or red. They're learning how to make motions in committees. It is notable that you have a very young delegation coming out of Buncombe County representing this area in the General Assembly. I, I can't think of another county or another region of the state that had this much turnover as we've had in Western North Carolina, at least on the House side, right? I mean, this is, you know, so Susan Fisher stepped down just before, so technically Caleb Rudow was in, but he was in for like I don't know, the amount of time we've been sitting in this room. I mean, he is, for all intents and purposes, still very much a freshman. Um, I think that is going to be a real change. I mean, losing somebody like a Brian Turner or somebody like a Susan Fisher or somebody like a John Ager who's been in for a number of terms is going to mean something different. It's like starting any other job except the worst paid job you've ever had. <laughs> right? So, you know, somebody's got to get in the car and drive from Buncombe County and make $13,951 a year, and yeah, that number's right, and get called anytime that somebody decides that they're in session. These things are not set in stone. We know the long session is gonna be longer than the short session, except for the one time where that was not true. I mean, this is a massive change in somebody's lifestyle, and, and I, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to start any kind of job, particularly one with this many demands, particularly one with this much travel. I mean, by the time Mike Clampett gets to Asheville, he's like, what, half the way to Raleigh? I mean, it's a, it's a long way, right? 
Statesville's halfway, all right. Can you talk specifically about who was elected sure. in Western North Carolina and how the power in Western North Carolina has shifted from that election? Yeah, so we've seen, I mean, some real shifts, right? So we've had a number of powerful members of the House and the Senate over the years in Western North Carolina. Liston Ramsey, who mentioned before, of course, Tom Apodaca, who's still working in Raleigh, is extremely powerful. But in the 119, represented by Clampett, who's, by the way, the only state legislator here who gave me a hat on the way in. <laughs> so for the rest of y'all, I'm just saying. Um, we didn't get ads. Uh, I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> we have eaten Representative Clampett's food, though, and? in the general so No comment. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, Representative Clampett was, was re-elected in the 119. That, I think, is a really interesting district, um, right? It passed back and forth between Joe Sam Queen and Mike Clampett over the years. They faced each other five times before. Um, and just uh, every time I'd have a bad Rocky analogy, and luckily with redistricting, Joe Sam couldn't run again because I don't think there was a Rocky Six, so I didn't have to go back to that well. But Representative Clampett beat uh, Al Platt from Brevard. Um, uh, Senator Daniel was elected from the east side here of Buncombe County. Brian Turner, of course, uh, not running again, so Lindsey Prather was elected to his seat. Uh, Eric Ager took over for John Ager, who had been in before, of course, with a family with a long storied political history here in Western North Carolina. And then Caleb Rudow took over for the seat that had been occupied by um, Susan Fisher previously. Tim Moffat, a uh, familiar name, was in and out and back in again, right? Um, so had changed from the House to the Senate. Chuck Edwards, of course, pulled out of the Senate, ran for the U.S. House of Representatives, won in a primary that nobody paid any attention to against some Cawthorn <laughs> guy. Um, yeah, so we did see a number of changes in the West. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how can freshmen from Buncombe County in the minority in the House try to exert power in this environment. And let's put it in a political context. Buncombe County, for the most part, mm -hmm. is a blue county. Mm -hmm. Surrounded by Republicans, mm -hmm. I think it's important to note that Buncombe County is an economic engine for Western North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So folks want to see Asheville and Buncombe County thrive. Most. Most. <laughs> it's one of those unique positions where the delegation here really needs to partner with the legislators in the surrounding areas. And I want to note this, that Senator yeah. Warren Daniel mm -hmm. now represents part mm -hmm. parts of Buncombe County. Right. I have a feeling that a lot of eyes are on this senator, Senator Daniel, mm -hmm. to help kind of maneuver, <laughs> he's there, he's hiding, yeah. maneuver what Buncombe County's needs are and Western North Carolina's needs. Yeah, I don't think that's exactly right. Yes, when we look at kind of people who can help build policy, maybe not the most, you know, not the most polarizing policies, but in terms of economic development, in terms of the kinds of things that people in this room and people listening, I think can almost universally wrap their heads around. I think this is exactly the delegation to be watching to see what kinds of changes take place. Just to put a finer point on your Buncombe County point. So in Western North Carolina, counties in the, in the 11th congressional district. So don't push me too bad with Tauga County people. In Buncombe, no Republicans won. In every other county in Western North Carolina, five Democrats won. Three were in Madison County, one won by one vote in Swain County. So the degree to which people get sick of us saying over and over, a blue dot and a sea of red, but 
That has never been more true than it is today. And that's a bit of a change, right? So in 2000, which doesn't seem that long ago to me anyway, Buncombe County voted for George W. Bush for president of the United States, right? This has not always been the liberal bastion it is today, but you're seeing Buncombe get bluer and bluer and bluer, and the other counties get redder and redder and redder in places like Jackson that were some of the last purple counties. Didn't look very purple at all in 2022. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. So you talked a little bit about Buncombe County, the new legislators there. Talk about what this election meant for Western North Carolina and any statewide impacts that this election may have had on this region. Again, to me, the big story is this calcification, right? The degree to which Buncombe County is moving bluer, everything else is moving redder, and then the difficulty that's gonna set up for governing. So people like everybody who's in this room today who depends on regional economic development. I mean, it's, I think, going to be more of a challenge than it used to be. I think we're going to have to figure out some way to govern across party lines, which is harder and harder everywhere in this country. And it certainly is harder in North Carolina and in Western North Carolina. I mean, in terms of you know, kind of specific figures, obviously the folks we've talked about, I think are going to you know, gain in power. But it's going to be hard. I mean, losing somebody like Representative Turner, who has, I think, developed a reputation as somebody who can work across the aisle, right, I think is going to be a real change for the region. The parties are demanding more discipline. We could look to Senator Kirk Devier mm -hmm. in Fayetteville. He made some deals with Republicans in the budget. You could argue that he took anywhere between 500 and 800 million dollars back to his district. Mm -hmm. And what did he have waiting for him at the end? A primary. It is very difficult to work across the aisle when you bring home that kind of cash and then you find yourself losing your primary election. Yeah. And you're an incumbent on top of all that. No, I think that's a, like parties demand discipline. Right. And so where does the power really happen? And obviously the other two on this panel exercise this and, and practice this in a way that I don't, but I think we're so used to looking at voting patterns, um, but we really need to be looking at, you know, what's who's participating on what bills, right? So it's one thing to, you know, people aren't going to break across party lines very often in terms of voting. They just, they can't do it because they'll be punished at the ballot box, just like you described. But can they bring an issue from number 30 on the list to number two on the list? Yes, so they can, right? And obviously that's what government relations and lobbyist people do for a living. They don't try to swing votes as much as they try to change participation. And I think that makes it harder, particularly for those of us in the West, right? Because we're trying to pay attention to something that's happening four hours away with a bunch of legislators who can go home and get a turkey sandwich and then come back to the General Assembly building. And there's just no way to do that out here. And if you're in this room and you're trying to pay attention to what's happening in Raleigh, I mean, heaven forbid you just scroll Twitter to try to understand. Like, that's not a great way to keep track of what's happening in the legislature. So if you were to name the biggest issues that the folks in this room 
would care about that are coming up, what would they be? I mean, clearly issues around economic development, clearly issues in not just in Buncombe County, actually, in all of Western North Carolina about affordable housing. Affordable housing, A, and middle class housing, mm -hmm. I think, um, B, I was just heard, uh, actually, somebody that came up a second ago, right, was making a joke about trying to find a place to live and, and kind of what that feels like. I think that's real. Rural broadband, I get that it's become like almost a joke how often people say we need rural broadband, but man, is it real? I mean, when you've got people in local public schools who are going to the McDonald's parking lot to try to get Wi-Fi access, particularly during a pandemic, I mean, that's a real policy issue. Other than that, I think it's, it's the issues that matter elsewhere in the state, but those are pretty unique, um, pretty unique to Western North Carolina, I think, in some ways. And actually, I think um, I heard Representative Turner say one time uh, that some of the issues here are also shared. Actually, I heard Representative Clampett say the same thing, uh, that the issues shared that we talk about here and the issues they talk about on the coast are very, very similar in a whole lot of ways, right? And so that massive divide between wealth and poverty that we have in the West is also shared in the East. And so maybe in addition to talking about the Western delegation, thinking through what are partnerships that make sense that skip over uh, Mecklenburg County and skip over Forsyth and Guilford and Wake and Orange and Durham and then end up on the eastern part of the state. Well, you, you bring up a good point because if you were to look at the budget this past session or 2021, 2022, eastern North Carolina, east of 95, mm -hmm. that delegation all over that area seems to come together and really agree on a lot of issues, flood mitigation mm -hmm. being number one. If you were to look at the budget, you're like, man, Eastern North Carolina just mopped up, no yeah. pun intended. They, <laughs> Western North Carolina, is it because of the, the geography of Western North Carolina? It doesn't feel as coalesced as Eastern North Carolina. And is there opportunity to do that? To, to sure. all these communities stand together, go down to the General Assembly, say, this is what we need. Yeah, I, I think there is opportunity. I think it's more difficult in a world, again, where Buncombe is trending left and everything else, if not trending right, is at least pretty far on the right. Like, I think that's tough. I think the geography is real too. I mean, so Kevin Corbin's district in the western part of the state is huge. I and mean, what would it take to get from one end of Senate District 50 to the other? I mean, two and a half hours? I mean, even within counties, you know, from in Jackson County, from Silva to Cashers, you look at, and yes, it's pronounced Cashers, you look at that on a map, and it looks like, eh, you're there in 20 minutes. You're there in like 50 minutes if you're not behind a slow truck. And so I think it's, it's harder. And people like Matt Balance who are running, you know, sort of regional-wide parties, same thing's true on the Republican side. You know, how do you get that many touches and that many parts of a big district like this? I think it's really, really difficult. Would you agree that there are issues that in the western part of the state, they maybe the folks in this room could form sort of a coalition and determine what their priorities are and take those to the General Assembly? Yes, um, and I think the fact that you know, we have legislators here today to listen says that that opportunity is available. I mean, I, to pick on uh, Senator Mayfield for a second, I mean, I've heard her talk a lot about sort of opportunities in the West, opportunities to piece together the true Western delegation I think it's just tough, and it's particularly going to be tough on the Senate side, where frankly, the Republicans don't have to listen to the Democrats to pass a single 
bill, right? So it's going to be extremely difficult, but certainly I think there's the opportunity for it. Yeah. And let's talk about that. <laughs> so a supermajority in the Senate. Yep. One Democrat is holding the Republicans yep. back from a supermajority in the House. How's this going to play out, you think? Right. I mean, I guess if you listen to, to the speaker, they've got a working supermajority. Mm -hmm. I did check my politics to English dictionary. I couldn't find that one. But <laughs> look, it may work out that way, right? All the Republicans need is one person to come over to the Democratic side. Clearly, all eyes, as we were talking before, are going to be on a very small number of legislators who might be that person. My guess is it's not going to be that clean either way. My guess is that there are a certain set of issues not the hottest issues of the day, not issues like abortion, not issues that tend to make the headlines of the Internet or Citizen Times or whatever, um, where you might see some Democrats come over. So maybe in a strange way, it could lead to some more bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's I'm a glass half full guy, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. So I think it's possible that that could happen. It's also possible that the Republicans can just hold the line hard. Yeah. Um, and if you listen, I think I've even heard on y'all's podcast, sort of rumors that there's three or four legislators that are even thinking perhaps about changing parties or at least voting with the Republicans. I would think that Governor Cooper's power probably is, is somewhat diminished, right? Yeah. We're at the end of his second term. Yeah. It's going to be harder to keep discipline. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, so just to start off with institutionally, right, if you think about governors vary a ton in how powerful they are. So if you spend your life thinking about things other than governors, one, good on you. But uh, some have a lot more power than others. Ours is incredibly weak by design. So we've had three constitutions in the state of North Carolina. There ain't a lot that holds them together. One thing that does is legislature first state, governor doesn't have a lot of power. We were 100 years past every other state to give the governor the veto power in the first place. All right. Mm -hmm. So institutionally, he can't do much. So all he can really do is use political power, use rhetorical power. Love the guy or hate him, I think he's done that very well. I think it's going to be really tough to do that as a lame duck. And I don't know that politically the Devier push helped him, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't think that is viewed as a very positive decision politically in a lot of ways. Would you say that the average person knows that Governor Cooper took out a member of his own party for making a deal? No, I don't think the average person knows any of that. They might be able to identify Governor Cooper. Look, I asked people in a Western North Carolina You kind of look like him, actually. <laughs> I was just thinking that. It's, if you make a joke, it was a diet. No, I'm not going to make that joke because this is the fifth podcast you've been on. <laughs> I did a poll in Western North Carolina recently and I asked people, who's in control of the General Assembly, the Democrats or Republicans? Okay, or I don't know. The majority of the people did not say Republican. 30% of the people said Republican. Now there's two options here. 30% of the people said Republican. They don't know who's in charge of the General Assembly. Most of them don't know that there is a General Assembly. Most people don't know that the General Assembly is different than Congress. I mean, there's so much misinformation. So no, they don't know those details, but I think the kinds of people who are making policy do and the kinds of people who might be scared that Governor Cooper is going to try to get them primaried, they do pay attention. Mm -hmm. Majority Leader John Bell told us that if a member of his caucus has 15% name recognition, that is off the charts good. Yeah. 
you're right. People don't know much about state politics, and it's a shame because that's what matters, right? I mean, ultimately, all the people in this room, we have Democrats and Republicans who are in office, have a lot more say-so over our lives than Madison Cawthorn did and Chuck Edwards will. Not to say that Congress isn't important, it is, but in terms of the things that really matter, I think our General Assembly is far more important. Speaking of Madison Cawthorn, you brought him up a couple of times, and Senator Chuck, now Congressman Chuck Edwards, you mentioned him as well. Orientation is happening there in D.C. What is going on in the 11th District with that office right now? Do you have a congressman right now? Do you guys know that Where's Waldo book? You ever do that with your, with your kids? I do. Um, I mean, look, I think he was on the floor today, uh, somebody told me. Love him or hate him, uh, if you got nine MAGA hats at home or you voted for Joe Biden, I, I think you're having a hard time getting in touch with a member of Congress. And I think that is a real problem. And I worry that with all of the coverage of Cawthorn and people drooling over him pro and con, that we're losing track of what happens when 750,000 people don't have a constituency service office to call. Right? When people need things from government mm -hmm. and they just can't get it. And in Western North Carolina, we also had that at the end of Congressman Meadows' term. And uh, lest you think that I'm picking on Republicans here, let's remember Governor Cooper could have called for a special election, right? So to back up, if you're newer to town, Congressman Meadows uh, stepped down, said, okay, I'm gonna go be chief of staff for President Trump. All sorts of interesting things happened there. But then we had a long period from, I think it was about February through the next year where we didn't have a member of Congress. Governor Cooper had the power to call for a special election. He never did. Now, I don't know, despite the fact that evidently we look alike and share a last name, he doesn't return my phone calls. I don't know why he didn't do it. I'm guessing it's politics. I'm guessing he knew that if he called one, we were gonna have a Republican represent this district. But that too had real had a real impact on the fact that people in this district once again didn't really have a member of Congress to call. In that case, it's not that we sort of didn't, like we actually didn't. So I think this district is pretty unique in some ways that, that worry me a little bit for how democracy functions. And had he called that election, mm -hmm. uh, Madison Cawthorn would not have been old enough to run. That's exactly right. So Madison Cawthorn's birthday is in August and he would not have been old enough to run. He had to be 25 years old to serve the House of Representatives. So if Governor Cooper had called it, who knows, maybe somebody in this room right now would be member of Congress in the 11th, but it would not be Madison Cawthorn. That's interesting. And what would you say is the impact on Western North Carolina folks if they don't have those constituent services and you go through these large periods where there isn't someone to call for help? I mean, just put it in context, a lot of folks think they just go up there and vote yes or no, but right. I've used my local congressman to help my father get VA benefits. People don't realize all the constituent yeah. services that, that are needed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've, across the aisle, right, Democrats or Republicans, if you ask people who are staffers, you know, they say, what do you spend most of your time doing? And the answer is constituency service, yeah. right? I mean, so what do members of Congress do? Yes, they vote. Yes, they formulate policy. But I hate to break it to you, especially freshmen, aren't really passing a lot of policies. And so what are they doing? They are getting those VA benefits. They're doing all those things. They are 
the primary connection between the citizens and their government in Washington, and particularly in a region that often feels left behind, where we have really, every time I survey this region, our levels of trust in government are like cratered. They're incredibly low. When there's nobody to call or the person you call doesn't answer the phone or call you back, that's only going to get worse. And it's, I mean, it's hard. I, I feel for Chuck Edwards having to take over and represent a region that has been not represented very well in terms of constituency service now for a number of years. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. If you listen to the podcast, you know every week we do a tweet of the week. And Dr. Cooper, you know, we kind of hum this tweet of the week intro. Are you going to hum it with us? Sure, absolutely. Actually, everybody could do it if you You wanted. So let's do it. One, two, three. Tweet of the week. Thank you. That was good, right? That was fantastic. It was better than just you and I doing it. Yeah, that's for sure. This week's tweet of the week actually comes from Governor Roy, not Chris Cooper, (laughs) and that's at NC underscore governor. And he tweeted, with POTUS asking for our turkeys and Congress wanting our Christmas trees, we only need a holly wreath for the door of the Supreme Court to claim the holiday cheer trifecta. So this tweet obviously is stemming from the Capitol using a tree from the Pisgah National Forest. But there's also a uh, sub-story here. Governor Cooper is in Washington, D.C. a lot these days. Uh, what do you think? You know, his term ends in 2024. He is. He's got to be looking for another job, okay. right? You know, I don't buy the Roy Cooper as president rumors. Right. Um, I think that most people in the state don't tend to buy the Roy Cooper as president rumors, but he sure looks good on paper, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you're going to say, hey, governor of a, call it a purple state, call it a pink state, whatever, who's a Democrat, who is governed without much power, you know, he's got a lot of time left he could serve. He makes sense on paper. You know, I'm not sure we're really going to see that, but who knows? Do you think President Biden runs for re-election? I do. Do you? What do I know? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> but, you know, I'm guessing he does, but uh, heck if I know. Who's the front runner on the Republican side for president? Depends how many candidates there are. Okay. Right? So if you get, I think the reason we got Donald Trump, I believe, is an incredibly boring story of so many candidates. You get all of a small pie and you can drive yourself to victory. And if the Republicans put, you know, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Marco Rubio, the list goes on, and there's 12 candidates, I think we're getting candidate Trump again. Mm -hmm. If it is Trump versus DeSantis or Trump versus two people, I I think he probably goes down. But I think it's up to the Republican Party to control the size of this field if they don't want Donald Trump again. And do you see Cooper at least being on a short list for VP? Or in a cabinet role, just to float that name out there? Yeah, sure. Cabinet role is something I can definitely see. Like I. The president doesn't quite pass the smell test for me. Cabinet does. But safe to say he's not leaving before his term ends because that just gives you a Republican governor. Yeah, right? that's exactly Mark right. Robinson gets sworn in. 
And that's not going to happen, at least under Governor Cooper's watch. Yes, that's right. Back to the tree. How is it that North Carolina is working our way into national politics with everything, whether it's the tree or the turkeys? How, how does that happen? Do we petition for that? Yeah, we filed a petition, got it approved by everybody, <laughs> got the notary. Look, I mean, it, politics here is interesting as there are anywhere in the country. I mean, if you're looking at, again, called, I would call it a purple state. Maybe you want to call it a pink state. What is a pink state? You a, said that earlier. I, I what is that? Some people would argue that we are a purple state with a little reddish hue, which gives you roughly pink, I think, right? So, no, I'm getting a no from somebody who's much more important than I am, Kit Kramer. So, uh, some people I've heard argue that. I think we're more of a purple state, but because we're a purple state, it's the grand irony of North Carolina, right? Because it's so divided, that's why our politics get so nasty. That if you're in Oklahoma, you can just slow roll this thing if you're the Republicans. You don't have to act fast. You're in control for the next hundred years. If you're a Democrat in California, take your time. If you're in power in North Carolina, act now because it might be gone soon. So I yeah. think the fact that we're purple is what has led to this kind of brass knuckles politics. So not all political news was state news or even national news. There were some interesting local political happenings around election day. And can you share a little bit of what you saw here in Western North Carolina? Sure, yeah. Folks in the room probably saw this, but maybe not folks in the podcast. It was a, a tax collector from, uh, from Haywood County. He was elected at, at 20 years old, being an incumbent. He was a Republican. He's a student right here at UNC Asheville. Okay. And so uh, you may be asking yourself, man, I don't remember voting for tax collector. And unless you live in Haywood County, you are right. Cause it's the only county in the entire state that elects a tax collector. And so why he won, different people can think what they want. The fact that a Republican won every other office in Haywood County, I think maybe one reason why this kid won and the incumbent who had achieved, I think the best tax collection rate in the history of Haywood County lost. Um, so that was an interesting one in Swain County. We had one vote separating uh, folks running for sheriff. And we see that a lot in the West. So next time somebody wags their finger in your face and says every vote counts, like remember that. In Silva right now, there are two people on the town council there who were elected by a coin flip. So a coin flip on two of the people on the council determined who's on. So every vote does count, particularly here in the West. What was the funniest thing that you saw in election data? Actually, I think Madison County. Like Madison County has this interesting history of capital D Democratic politics, particularly when it comes to sheriffs mm -hmm. and the fact that in the West, the, uh, of the Democrats who won, three of them were in Madison County, including folks running for, uh, for, some, for sheriff in some of these local offices. So there is still some limited example of these kind of the old capital D Democratic dynasty here in the West. Dr. Cooper, you said that you knew this question was coming. You've thought about it. You didn't want to give the answers everyone else gave. What is your magic wand if you could change one thing in our politics? Well, I want to figure out a way to refocus probably the only resource that we can't generate more of, which is attention. So sort of what I figure if this is a true magic wand and I can just change everything, I want to think about taking all of the tweets and the TikToks and the MySpace posts and the Friendster post and the I'm journalists. Sorry, MySpace? Yeah, you know, I'm going back to Friendster as well. <laughs> I don't know what Friendster even is. It, oh, it's pre-MySpace. It was, it was killer. Uh, 
Take all those. Take the journalists. Take the stories. Take all the attention, the SNL skits that we all put into national politics, and then flip that with all the attention we put on state politics. That I really think our politics okay. would be better if it wasn't so nationalized. If more people knew who Brian Turner was, and fewer people knew who Madison Cawthorn was. If more people knew who Tim Moffat was, and fewer people knew who Mitch McConnell was. That's a really good answer. It is a good answer. Well, thanks. Yeah, you've been thinking about this. Just on the way here. <laughs> worked out okay, And for the I rest guess. of my life. Yes. And the Friendster thing, I mean, that was just, that was on the spot. <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Chris Cooper, we appreciate everything you are doing in North Carolina politics. We listen to the dozens of politics podcasts. And we're not even on. mad that we were last. No, we're not mad at all. But, sir, you certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being with us today on this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Well, thank you to the city of Asheville for having us, to the Chamber of Commerce. We've really appreciated the discussion that we have had with Dr. Cooper and the folks in the audience. As you go about your next week, we will come back to you next week with the news of the week. But until then, please remember to do politics better. All right. I think that's a great place to close it out. Thank you, Brian and Scott and Dr. Cooper. There we go. Brian's joined by Scott David, who's a Illinois native, uh, but... The, the S is silent. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of this during the podcast. Uh,